Welcome to the party, pal. Michael Dukes show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Oh, yeah. Streaming and playing and broadcasting live across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or translator. And as the guy just said, around the world on the interwebs at MichaelDukeShow.com, where you will find the podcast, all of our social media links, uh, Links and locations for all the radio stations and translators that we broadcast on. It is the Michael Duke Show. Welcome to it. Thursday edition. Whew, this week is just flowing by. Flowing by. Um, trying to uh, keep track of everything. It's been uh, really, really crazy. And uh, it's been a heck of a week. So we appreciate you guys tuning in and joining us today. Um, been working on some stuff, uh, as far as guests, uh, we were expecting to have, um, we were expecting to have Sarah Palin on, Palin on today, but that fell uh, through at the last minute. So we did end up with some guests, but we will probably be, um, interviewing Sarah Palin sometime next week at this point, we're going to do our best to. Uh, try and focus on a lot of the local races, um, a lot of the statewide races, and some of the various candidates. Um, we're uh, reaching out to uh, Doug Massey, Jim Matherly, and a handful of other candidates for next week. So that's the plan, anyway. So we're we're trying to get it all done. Uh, but uh, oof, man, so many, so many, so many balls in the air at this point. <laughs> so many things going on. But I did get some guests for today. And so um, I always enjoy, I mean, I could sit here and bloviate for two hours, no problem, but it's always nice to have information and being able to discuss um, stuff with people who are in the know or who are in the middle of these things. And so we will uh, we'll, we'll continue to do that. Today's guests include, in hour two, uh, Senator Rob Myers, who is... Um, who uh, who is uh, of course the state senator for District B, up there in the North Pole area? I can't remember what his new, what is his new district? The new district number. This is going to mess me up. The new district numbers uh, are for. Uh, nope, that's not it. How about this one? How about this one? There we go. Senator uh, for the upcoming. It will be seat Q for the upcoming election. It's currently seat B. Now it's going to be seat Q, and so they they flip that around. And you can't, I can't keep track of it all, man. I cannot keep track of it all. Uh, so anyway, Rob Myers is going to be joining us here in just a few minutes. Um, that leaves us uh, over to hour one, where we will be talking with Republican candidate for the new District uh, 32 in the State House. Will Stapp will be joining us in hour one, and we'll talk with him about his run. 
Um, it's interesting that uh, in this race, um, we have the two registered Republicans are both um, listeners to the show. They both uh, participated in the chat room in the past and talked with us and doing things. So we've got Timothy Givens and Will Stapp. And uh, my old rival, I would say arch nemesis, but that's not really right. Van Lawrence is also the registered Democrat in the region. And um, um, Van and I ran against each other when we ran for borough assembly back in the day. Uh, so it just feels like it feels like old home weeks. So it's uh, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. So we'll be um, we'll be uh, talking uh, with Will Stapp in just a few minutes, and then uh, and then Rob Myers, and then tomorrow on the program. That's what I wanted to talk about. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to be talking with um, uh, John Lott, Doctor John Lott. will be talking with us author of the book more guns less crime and uh we'll uh we'll see what we'll see what comes out of that conversation uh it should be it should be a uh, an interesting one to say the least so that's uh coming up tomorrow plus willie waffle and more well um what do i want to talk about uh there's uh, several uh, stories out here that um garnered my attention First and foremost, there is a brand new court case. The Alaska State Commission on Human Rights is now suing the lieutenant governor and the Division of Elections over what it says is a lack of sufficient accommodations for blind voters in the U.S. House special primary. The complaint was filed yesterday in the state superior court in Anchorage. And it alleges that the ballots that were mailed to every registered voter in the state for the special primary do not provide for an opportunity to visually impaired voters to vote privately, secretly, and independently. Now, usually what happens, um, um, usually what happens is uh, the the visually impaired voters will go to a voting location and they have special machines set up. So that they can, uh, you know, so that they can still vote in the election. But because this is all mail-in ballots, uh, that is not an option. And even though they do have voting, um, in-person voting set up at uh, areas around the state, apparently they've only got the visually impaired machines at a handful of the locations. And um, I guess this is something that I didn't consider uh, when... Um, when they started talking about the full mail-in balloting, um, I didn't consider the fact that visually impaired voters would, uh, you know, would would be difficult. Although I guess I would not. I I I guess. I mean, I don't know. I'm not visually impaired. Uh, I don't know anybody who is. I would have thought that they could have asked for help in figuring out the ballots. But again, the the uh, complaint is that they did not provide an opportunity to visually impaired voters to vote privately, secretly, and independently. Those are the three key words there. So I suppose if you ask for help, it would be neither private nor secret, nor would it be independent. Um, I guess I don't know why they just don't, if they've got enough of these machines that normally they're at every polling location, I just don't know why they wouldn't move one of these machines to every one of the in-person voting places that are going to be open around the state. 
there are only five of the um, uh, the visually impaired voters are only available. Those machines are only available at five of the 170 in-person polling places across the state. So I don't I don't know why they just wouldn't ship one machine to every in-person. I mean, they have to have them anyway, right? I mean, to meet the whole ADA and all that other kind of stuff, you would think that they would have to have these at every voting location during a regular election. So why wouldn't you just ship one machine to each location? I'm assuming they would have enough machines. Why why wouldn't they just ship one machine to each uh, location? Um, but anyway, it's... Um, the 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 thing has been expedited. The lawsuit has been expedited, and they were supposed to have a hearing about it late yesterday. But they still have not updated the. Uh, they've still not updated the new uh, news story. Uh, but this is um, th- this is I guess the way that it uh, reads. Responding to the complaint, um, the Department of Law said the Division of Elections has systems in place to help all voters exercise their right to vote. Even in a mail-in election, a voter can get the assistance of a trusted person to complete the ballot received in the mail in the comfort of their own home. Election workers can help voters with their ballots at an absentee in-person location or division office, or voters can fill out a ballot privately online using their computer or or tablet set to their own specifications. And at the division regional office, tablets are available to fill out the ballot digitally for those who need it. So, I mean, I don't... I don't know if this is much ado about nothing or not. I, I think it's, um, I think it's interesting, I guess to say the least. Um, so I mean, they've got they had some they apparently planned ahead in some ways, but just not enough to, um, I guess, just not enough to have the voting machines at every. Maybe they don't have enough of these voting machines. I don't know. Uh, this is the first time, quite honestly, and. I mean, I guess I, I've just never considered it in that regard. Maybe that makes me a horrible person, but I just, I guess I've never considered it because I've never had to deal with it. But um, I don't know as I would be that upset to have somebody that I trusted help me with my ballot. Maybe I'm just not independent, independent-minded enough where I would want my independence if I go. But I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. Anyway, an interesting story for those of you who are following along at home. Chris Tuck has now dropped out of the race uh, for his house district. Um, that's District 13, the new the new district, where he and Andy Josephson were both districted into the same place uh, with Kathy Hensley and Timothy Hewitt. Uh, the AIP candidate for Hewitt and the Republican Hensley, uh, there was talk that they were trying to decide amongst themselves between Tuck and Josephson, Andy Josephson, which one would drop out. Um, and I guess at this point it was decided. I will give some props to the ADN. Uh, I noticed that Suzanne Downing didn't say anything about it, but at the very end of the story, which is very short, um, where Tuck said he withdrew from the race from due to a request from a seven-year-old daughter that maybe she wanted to see dad at home more often. I don't know. Um, the ADN did announce, he said that he announced his withdrawal at a Wednesday meeting 
of the state's campaign finance agency, that's APOC, the Alaska Public Offices Commission, which has proposed a $56,000 fine against Tuck for failing to report $500 in campaign income that he received just before the 2020 election. Now, he said that that contribution was disclosed in another report and wasn't required in the report that's subject of the proposed penalty. He said the fine wasn't a factor in his decision not to run, uh, which I guess I found mildly interesting on top of that. Uh, APOC, when they got their, when they got their dander up, they are, they did, they, they do not mess around. But, uh, anyway, the downing story doesn't even mention that at all, which I thought was interesting. Uh, but anyway, Chris Tuck is out, which again, he was a, he was a pro-life, pro-PFD Democrat, um, you know, more of a blue dog Democrat, uh, than anything else. So not surprising that he dropped out. And left Josephson since Josephson is a basically a toe the party line guy, pro you know, uh, pro abortion, pro tax, pro or anti PFD. I mean he's he's uh, you know Josephson is everything that say Kathleen Hensley is not. At least it gives them a dividing line. Uh, but this will be interesting. This will be interesting to watch. Uh, um, this will be interesting to watch as it goes on. But Chris Tuck is out, I guess for now. We'll see. We'll see what happens in the long run there. So anyway, two interesting uh, points and pieces for today that caught my attention before we uh, before we got started this morning. All right, we are coming up on the break, and so we are going to take a quick uh, trip to the commercial locker, pay a few bills, and we will continue our discussion in just a moment. The Michael Duke Show continues. Coming up next, it's going to be Will Stapp, who is the GOP candidate for District 32 in the interior. That's up next right here on your home for common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Don't go anywhere. Make sure to check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash Michael Duke Show. Join us for the conversation during the commercial break. Back with more after this. If you missed the show, you can listen to it on your time with Dukes On Demand. Oh, and it's free. Like America used to be. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, we're in the break. And we're getting things all ready. Already, already. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Jerrica, Greg, Rick, Sandy, Barbara, Edie. Um, Sandy likes my shirt. It's covered in little white anchors. It's very cool. Uh, Nice and rainy. Yes, it was. Late notification. Good morning. Serious thunder last night. Lightning downpour. I mean, we could rain. I want it to just rain, rain, rain. Give Give me a couple days of rain. Couple days of rain would be just nice. Uh, Floyd said he didn't see that coming. I'm assuming that he was talking about the blind thing. Didn't see that. (laughs) I see what you did there. Or in this case, I didn't see what you did there. All right. Um, Good morning. Good morning. Good good riddance to Tuck. Tuck was a raider. Tuck was actually more pro-PFD than most of the Democrats. So I'll take a little bit on bridge with that. But uh, yeah, interesting to say the least. Uh, 45 folks in the chat room this morning, and there's only been about a dozen of you who have actually sounded off and said good morning. Why are you lurking? 
Why won't you just say hi? That's it. Two letters. Hi. Just sit H-I. Hi. Say hi to us this morning. Who's there? Who's? What are you doing? Are you just hanging out and watching or what? Oh, you can like it. You can thumbs up it. I see there's a lot of thumbs up and likes and smiles and stuff going through. Or you can hate it if you want. You can be mad. That's fine. There's not, no respecter of persons around here. But I love it when you say hi. So Seth and Sandy and Juanita and April and everybody else, hi, 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 hi. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Um, I mean, I'm not trying to shame you. It's just like when I see 45 people in the chat room and only like eight or nine people talking back and forth for the entire show, I'm thinking, did they just leave their phone on? I mean, did their their phones just hanging out and they're just, you know, whatever? Just wondering. Uh, Good morning, Pete. Good morning, Rusty and David and Brian and Herder and Tawny. Welcome to all you guys this morning. I'm saying hi to everybody this morning. I've got, I mean, I got some time. Hi, hi, hi to everybody. Thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. Uh, Yeah, some thunder and lightning on the peninsula. Let's hope that there's more rain with that thunder and lightning. Let's hope those lightning strikes didn't start anything that we can't stop. Good morning, Jimmy. Good morning, Rich. And good morning, Walter, for coming. Thanks for coming on board. It's good to hear from you guys. And good to know that there are more people in Alaska who care about what's going on. So we we love that. Um, joining us on the phone right now is um, our next guest. Uh, Will Stapp is here, and uh, he joins us in the uh, chat room or in the in the on the phones this morning to uh, to get things ready to go. Good morning, sir. How are you? Oh, I'm doing very well this morning, Michael. How are you, sir? You know, there's no complaining. It's uh, every day above ground is a good day. That's all I can say. Every day yeah, above ground is a good day. Well, it's another beautiful day up here in Fairbanks, that's for sure. Good, good. Well, we're about um, oh, we're about 90 seconds out from joining uh, from joining the uh, rejoining the radio. So hold the line, hang out in my uh, virtual green room, and eat my virtual donuts and drink my virtual coffee. And uh, we will uh, all hang out together here in just a minute. A lot of people are just leaving their phone on and getting ready for work. I can't blame you. I'm not. I'm not. Criti- Again, I wasn't criticizing you for not saying hi. It's just nice when I know that there's more than a you know nine or ten people. I thought maybe the rest of them were bots. You know, just uh, fluffing up my ego or whatever. But it's always nice to know who else is in the chat room. So don't ever be afraid to just say hi. I'll try and call out your name if I see you. Say hi in the chat room. That's uh, that's how it is. Everybody else is just getting getting ready. Gorgeous here in Fairbanks. Raining here in the valley and raining in Anchorage from what I can see. So, yeah, I mean, that's good. We just need more rain. Just need more rain. Uh, so we can avoid the summer apocalypse inferno fires that seem to run up here when there's not enough, when there's not enough rainfall. All right. Well, 30 seconds. Are you guys ready to go? You guys ready to um, guys ready to make things happen? So, uh, no, they're not Russian bots. I think they're just bots, bots. I'm, not, I'm no respecter of persons here, Brian. We'll get it done. Will Stapp is our guest. The Michael Duke Show. Like it, share. Like it, follow. Uh, let's uh, get this thing ready to roll on your home for Common Sense Radio. Let's do it.
All right, welcome back to the program. The Michael Duke Show continues. We're joined now by our guest this morning, who is the GOP candidate for House District, the newly rechristened House District 32 up in the interior. Will Stapp joins us uh, to discuss his candidacy and his vision for the interior and more. Let's uh, go over to the phones and see what he has to say. We'll start off uh, right here. Good morning, sir. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good, Michael. How are you? You know, a uh, good day today. Good day. It's uh, it's all gr- the grass is green on this side of it, and I like being on this side of the grass. So it's all good uh, at this point. Um, yeah, for sure. It's tall up here too. I tell you what. I know you guys. Uh, you guys have had some beautiful weather. I was up there last weekend, and uh, definitely some beautiful weather up there in Fairbanks. Uh, we could use a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> we could use a little bit more of the rain, but uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, but let's dive into this, uh, Will. Let's uh, let's start talking about this. So, um, I guess first and foremost, we need to know a little bit about you and where you come from. Uh, yeah, other absolutely. than you have other than you have a tremendously good taste in radio listening. Um, what uh, what is your you know what's your background? What are you where you come from? Well, uh, you know, Michael, <clears throat> I tell folks uh, I grew up in uh, in Seattle area. I grew up in the city of Kirkland, which is now made famous by Costco. Um, you know, I had kind of a rough childhood. My mom died when I was seven and my dad wasn't around. So um, I was raised by my grandparents. And uh, I tell folks, uh, when you want to be a rebel and you grow up in Seattle, you vote Republican and you join the army. <laughs> so when I was uh, 18, I graduated high school in uh, 2006. And uh, that documentary refilm series, HBO's Band of Brothers had come out. So I wanted to be a paratrooper and I wanted to be in the infantry and I wanted to go fight in the Iraq war. So I did all those things. So I enlisted in the army and the infantry. And uh, my first duty station was Fort Wainwright, Alaska. Oh, wow. That's a shock. That's a shock for a kid from the Seattle suburbs. Yeah, I um I got off the plane in November of 2006. It was about 28 degrees below zero, and I was still in shorts and a t-shirt because I just finished um, the airborne school at Fort Benning, Georgia. So, yeah, that's a that's a shock to the system as well. So you came to uh, you eventually came back to Alaska. Is that the? Yeah, no, I um, yeah, I did actually. I uh, probably kind of similar story. You know, I had the opportunity to volunteer to go fight in Iraq in a, at the beginning of '07. So I deployed with the Airborne Brigade in Anchorage. So I was in 3rd Battalion, 509th Parachute Infantry Regiment. I was a machine gunner. Um, I fought in Fallujah there in northern Babel province. I was wounded in combat um, in uh, the summer of that year and got back from my first tour, uh, met my wife. My wife is Alaska native. Uh, she grew up in Wasilla. So I uh, ended up doing another deployment to Iraq um, in a different unit and then um my wife uh, has a big Alaska Native family, so we moved back to Alaska uh, when I got out of the Army and at the end of 2010 and, and uh, got into the insurance industry. So that's what I do now. I've been an insurance agent, employee benefits and stuff like that for uh, over a decade uh, here in Fairbanks. So. Nice. Well, so I guess the big question that I like to ask first time, uh, you know, political candidates is uh, when exactly did you lose your mind? Um what made you decide to jump into this madness that is politics? Was it cumulative? Was there one thing that broke the camel's back, so to speak, the one thing that pushed you over the edge? What made you think that this was a good idea? 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I used to jump out of planes, so you know I have a tendency for doing crazy things. So um, I, I tell folks, uh, you know, I, I've been in politics in Alaska, helping out on stuff uh, for a long time. Uh, you know, first campaign I worked on was um, um, twelve years ago. But uh, it, it's kind of like uh, you know, you live in a, a district, uh, your sitting reps uh, retiring, and uh, you know, people say, "Hey, would you consider running?" And I basically thought, you know, I, I don't really want to do this because um, I'm kind of a polite person, uh, Michael. I like to be respectful to everybody, and you know, there's a lot of angry people right now. So, um, you know, but uh, <clears throat> so I ended up thinking about it, and you know, I have two young daughters now. We have a four-year-old and a one-year-old, and um, I just kind of feel like there's a lot of issues uh, in our state. And I haven't heard a lot of folks articulate a lot of actual positive solutions to do things like control the cost of government and lower the state's operating budget. Right. Know, everyone says that. And um, I, I tell folks, you know, look, I, I've done a lot of stuff in, in my life. And uh, one of the things that I, I tell folks that, you know, I, I look at of bills that, that, you know, the Senate looked at back in 2014 to really control healthcare costs and looked at public sector pooling. And, you know, these groups, they funded studies and they, they paid these consulting firms hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to find ways to save money on the state's operating budget. And then none of that stuff ended up getting done. So, right. Because this is the Alaska, this is the Alaska study industry where we study the study that we studied before and we're going to hire another person to study those studies as well. And we just kind of get baked in this analysis paralysis where we pay people to do it. It's like it's the whole issue of the fiscal policy working group this last summer. They did a tremendous amount of work in a very short period of time. And then uh, the legislature ended up doing absolutely nothing with all the work that they came out of this bipartisan committee that was unanimously approved at the end. And they all came back and said, that was nice here. Let me put this in a drawer. And that seems to be the constant, uh, you know, problem out there is that we get stuck. We get stuck in this analysis. Per, so we look like we're doing something, but we never actually solve the. Uh, we never actually solve the problem. Um, now, Will, uh, you're running for the seat that uh, this is Steve Thompson who's retiring, right? So it's downtown Fairbanks, out to Fort Wainwright, and uh, um, is that right? It's uh, it's actually the east part of Fairbanks. East part of Fairbanks. Yeah. Okay. Fort Wainwright in uh, Badger Road, um, and in redistricting, it basically goes all the way down the Richardson Highway to North Pole now. So. Okay. All right. So they made some changes. I hadn't seen the actual uh, boundaries of the new map, um, and so this should be interesting. But um, I guess what people are more concerned about, especially with uh, the uh, you know with with Thompson's position uh, of joining, he joined with the Democrats. Um, uh, you know, breaking the potential for a Republican majority and, of course, putting all the fiscal conservatives back in the minority again for the fourth or umpteenth year in a row. Um, I guess, you know, people are really kind of wondering. Now, around here, we don't necessarily separate out candidates by their party, although a lot of times the, the lines fall that way. Uh, it's not necessarily Republican versus Democrat on this program, as you probably know, because I know you've listened to it. Um, it's really a question of smaller government versus larger government. That, that's kind of how we delineate the labels on the politicians that we talk about. Where do you fall in that camp? Are you definitely a smaller, more limited government, live within our means guy, or are you okay with some government spending on things that are nice to have, or are you, 
you know, are you more inclined to, uh, you know, to give the money to the government to help it simulate the economy from that way? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm a limited government guy. I, I tell folks, uh, I, you know, in fear banks, Michael, as you well know that we do have some unique challenges that are uh, unique to the rest of the state mainly our high cost in energy and our kind of lack of infrastructure in order to drive our access to capital. So I'm a big fan of a smaller government, uh, although, you know, where we live, we have some unique challenges, of course. But, um, you know, look, and I do listen to the show, and I I tell folks, um, um, I I listen mainly because I like hearing new ideas from folks, and I I like to learn how to articulate things. but I'm going to disagree on some of the positions of your uh, of some of the guests that you have on uh, mm-hmm. about how to fix some of the the fiscal impasses. Um, you know, uh, but government can be sp- smaller in our state; it should be smaller. Um, uh, you know, our you know since I've lived in Alaska um, and I came here in 2006, um, you know, our state has continually grown its size and scope of government. And that's irrespective almost of good fiscal years or bad fiscal years. So what uh, it's interesting you say that because, you know, I never agree. I never uh, expect anybody to agree with me a hundred percent of the time um, or with any of the guests a hundred percent of the time. In fact, I disagree with some of my guests on a lot of the things that we talk about over the course of time. Maybe it's in subtle shades, but that, you know, nobody's ever a hundred percent in agreement. Um, what specifically sticks out in your mind here? Again, as you say that, you know, you disagree with some of the solutions. Um, what are the solutions that you disagree with and what would be your remedy for those? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, um, so the kind of the, the biggest thing that I, I tend to think about when it comes to state spending is adding control mechanisms, um, on the government. Right. Um, so I'm a big fan of, uh, Rep. Kaufman's and uh, Senator uh, Myers' spending cap bill, uh, one on the Senate side and one on the House side, they're variations of each other. Um, but the the kind of the issue I have, um, and I'll mention, you know, to your famous guests on here, when it co- talks to what's our long-term strategy in reducing the cost of government as we look at the permanent fund dividend program. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the PFD is an excellent program, Michael, but I, I get a lot of pause when I hear folks who say that we should impose an income tax or we should impose a sales tax uh, in order to have the program at a current level. Does that make sense, right? So uh, I tend to think that um, the dividend is an excellent program. There's a lot of historical background to that. You know, and I went to school at UAF for history, so I know a little bit about that. But I really am cautious of folks who argue, as even the fiscal working group argue, that we should have some sort of a broad-based tax um, in order to have the permanent fund dividend. And I know that that's probably not super popular, but uh, that's where I'm coming from. So, Well, let me ask you this. I mean, the dividend, as it was, I mean, you could see in the intent language when they set it up and everything else, you can see that the dividend was intended to be paid first. Right. The dividend was supposed to be a simple transfer. It was not supposed to be, you know, counted as income and outgo. It was supposed to be a simple transfer. And the people were supposed to have the first call on that money. That's pretty well established. And these uh, past legislatures over the last few years have continually ignored that. The problem is, is that if you paid the people first and followed the law, okay, 
um, is uh, the the problem is is that there wouldn't be a whole lot of money. You know, there would be not enough money left over for government and the things that the politicians want to do with government to make that work. And hence, they have instead taken the money from the PFD. And 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 here's the thing, uh, Will. We've already got a tax. We've already got a tax by them taking portions of the PFD. It is a broad-based tax that disproportionately affects the lower income, the lowest 50% of income earners in the state. So, I mean, we could talk about not having a new tax, a broad-based tax of sales tax or income tax or flat tax or whatever whatever poison you'd like to pick there. But the bottom line is, is that the, there's no political will to follow the law as it's currently written to pay the people first because they know that it would leave them short on many of maybe not this year with all the extra money that they had, but generally speaking over the last seven years, it would have left them short to do all the magical things that they wanted to do with government money. And that's part of the problem. I mean, yeah, certainly I, a lot of those things I, I would say are right on the, the money, Michael, but I, 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 I'm a stubborn guy. I love your show, but I'm going to, I'm going to push back on the concept that, uh, that I hear all the time that uh, the PFD reductions, which, again, I don't agree with. I would rather see the cost of government reduce in, in order so we didn't have this problem. Um, but reduction in the dividend program it, is not a tax on residents um, because of the nature of the money. Uh, you know, you, you don't tax people to get the dividend. The dividend is a program that the state pays out to residents that allow them to share in the state's oil wealth. And again, I think it's an excellent program. But we're pay- we're paying we're playing a little fast and loose with language when we try to make that argument be- because we're not going to equate the two things you know and mainly because the the, the, the uh, you know when you pay tax on the dividend the IRS they don't look at the money the same and they don't look at it like a dividend they look at it like ten ninety nine miscellaneous income does that make sense Yeah, but again again the whole point here is that I mean this is not a uh, this is not a, a thing where the state you know gives it to us because they're being generous this is alaskans own the resource i mean we're a unique critter right alaskans own the resources in 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 corporately they open it you know collectively and so this was a way for them to reap a benefit from their own resource that's like saying i've got a 401k or a or some kind of investment portfolio and i receive you know the dividend from those investments or from that 401k but because the, you know they've decided to keep some of it that's essentially not a ta- i mean technically maybe you could boil it down into the different languages but it is a de facto tax if nothing else they're taking the money that is intended and by law should be yours by statute it's you're supposed to receive by statute a 5 year rolling average percentile of the earnings of the permanent fund that's what the law says so instead, they've decided to take that. That I mean, it's a de facto tax. Yeah. So you know, you're definitely correct, Michael, when you talk about um, legislators and you know not following the law. And uh, I like to tell folks you should follow the law or change the law. But you know, because of the nature of how much politicians and Juno have spent out of our savings account, i.e., the CBR and the SBR, and because of how kind of lucky our state is with high revenues right now due to a massive oil price, um, you know, it, pos- it poses the state an opportunity that we might be able to actually impose the cost reductions that our state needs to kind of ensure that our government stops growing exponentially. 
But I don't see any way long-term, because of the nature of the draining of the state savings, that uh, you know we can get to a long-term fiscal plan with a sustainable budget without either changing the dividend formula or imposing a new broad-based tax. Uh, and I think most of your guests would probably agree with that statement. All right. Well, let's uh, let's uh, take a break here. We're up against it here. Uh, I want to continue this conversation. Will Stapp is our guest, GOP House candidate for District 32. Uh, we will continue in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Uh, we'll have some more questions and discussions for Will when we get back. It is the Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, Free Thinking Radio. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, if you haven't gone out to YouTube yet and put my name in there, I would ask that you do so and then like or subscribe and ring the bell there. We need to get 1,000 subscribers on YouTube so I can take it to the next level. Back with more and Will Staff right after this, The Michael Duke Show. What is that? Common Sense. Regularly heard on American Radio. Okay, we're in the break right now with uh, Will Stapp. Uh, we uh, got a few minutes here before we uh, pull things out. Uh, I don't want to get too much further into this, uh, what we were just talking about, without going back on the on the radio. I want to talk about all those on the radio. So uh, let me see here. What else? Uh, what else have we got here? Uh, Will, let's talk for just a minute about. Um, the Charter of Changes. Now, I don't know if you've listened to the show long enough to understand what those are, but those are the four uh, changes that I think need to be made in the state and in the way that we run things in the state to bring Alaska back on track. Are you familiar with the Charter at all? Uh, a little bit. I should have actually looked it up because my friend Barb Haney, Haney told me to do that before I got on the radio. So. Okay, well, I can explain it to you real quick. and. Sure. Uh, and we can go through it. So there's four basic changes that I suggest. It's uh, change the players, change the venue, change the rules, and change the funding. Changing the players basically means you know voting in people who are um, who are uh, you know sympathetic to smaller, more limited government, rather than voting in people who are for larger, broader, more government spending. You know, taking the PFD and those kind of things. So I'm assuming since you're running for office that you are in favor, in fact, of changing the players out in the legislature. Yeah, that would be correct. You know, uh, it would be kind of funny if I wasn't, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, let's uh, let, let's talk about number two. Number one's pretty easy. Number two um, is a little more difficult, uh, and it's a little more nuanced. It, changing the venue. Uh, I know there's been many, many votes to move the Capitol. Uh, that's not what I'm looking to do. My suggestion is, is that the legislative sessions themselves should be held somewhere on the road system in the state of Alaska. And quite honestly, I don't care if it's in Homer, Fairbanks, any of the points in between, you know, uh, wherever you want to put it. Someplace where, you know, 90% of Alaskans can climb into a vehicle and, uh, and just drive to their legislative sessions to participate in the process. That's one of the big problems we have in Juneau is that everything's so gridlocked down there. Most people are not independently wealthy enough to be able to break off a couple thousand bucks to go down and and visit the legislature on every bill. They've held held sessions on the road system in the past. It's not that difficult. It would not require a move of the Capitol. It would just mean that the session would be held 
somewhere that people could drive to. Uh, and so changing the venue is number two. What do you say? Um, absolutely, Michael. I, I tell folks, you know, I travel all over the state through my job. So I've been, uh, you know, I've done a week in Juneau and a week in Juneau in the legislative session is going to cost you about $2,400, by the way. Right. Um, you know, and I go to King Salmon and Yaknik and Anaktuvik Pass. Uh, but to me, the most important thing that I tell folks is, um, you know, regular people should have access with their legislators, right? Face-to-face and, access, right. Yeah, face-to-face access. And like I tell you, I'm, I grew up poor, and I didn't have parents, right? So, you know, I, I never got to, you know, my legislator, my state legislator in Washington was Jay Inslee, and I never met the man, right? And now he's governor, right? So, and I doubt he would have ever cared what I thought, so... Right, exactly. All right, well, number three is changing the rules, and there's three rules that I believe need to be changed. Uh, We shouldn't have a binding caucus, which is essentially coercion of a vote before the fact. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the practice that goes on in the legislature, but I believe that a binding caucus should be outlawed. Um, And in fact, it is in every other state in the union. Nobody else uses a binding caucus in their legislatures except for Alaska. Um, the second uh, rule is the conflict of interest rules. I believe we shouldn't have people who have a vested interest in an industry voting on it. For example, I would not expect that you would vote on issues that pertain to health care or, or insurance costs, those kind of things that, that might benefit, benefit you uh, in that regard. Uh, and the third one is the Open Meetings Act. They require that every elected body in the state, except themselves, apply, you know, comply with the Open Meetings Act. And that's that's for groups or committees or uh, bodies that are as small as three people. Um, and I find that infuriating that they've basically exempted themselves. What do you say? Uh, yeah, I mean, so there's some nuance, I think, to the last part. I, I don't quite understand why they would exempt themselves um, to, you know, the open meeting acts and, of course, billing on stuff. I would say in big principle, I, I certainly agree with everything. Somebody did explain to me um and maybe it's how they do conference committee for both bodies at a budget that that's why they didn't have them uh, exempted from the open meetings act. So there wasn't there was a reason, but I forget what I was told because I did ask that question before. So okay, so in principle, you're agreed down to number three. Number four is uh, changing the budgets, and I believe we need to change the way that we budget in this state. I believe it should either be zero based meaning they have to justify every expenditure again every year, or at the very least, it should be a five-year rolling average of the revenues we've received over the past five years. That would be a good starting point for the budget instead of just picking numbers out of the air. What say you quickly here? Yeah, I, I'm probably going to have a more um, – I agree abs- with – to your points, mine, mine's going to be a lot more technical, though, I think, Michael. Okay. Uh, I'm actually going to argue that – um, Alaska needs a spending cap that's indexed to the private sector GDP. And well, I would order, agree. I would agree. Get- yeah, I, hold on a second, uh, Will. I would agree with that. Um, but I think we're talking more about the budgeting process. But holding line, here we go. All right, Will Stapp is our guest. He is a GOP candidate for House District 31 in the interior. Uh, Before we went to break, we were talking about the PFD. Then we got talking about the Charter of Changes in the break. So we'll come back to the Charter here in just a second. But I want to continue this discussion uh, about the PFD. You know, the problem is this, Will. 
Um, again, if we paid out the P and you said the only way we have a sustainable budget moving forward is we either have to have an income tax or reduce the PFD. And I'll be honest with you. I think that's the wrong position simply because what's happening is government will expand to fill up all the available revenue. And so we have to find a way to take the PFD off the table so that they can focus on the remaining revenue and make government fit that pie. The problem is, is that by leaving the, the PFD on the table and allowing them to choose willy-nilly or to reduce it now or do whatever, it's eventually they will reduce it to zero because government will continue to fill up and expand to consume all available revenue. And that's the problem here. If we, let's just say we cut it down to a 50-50 POMV. Well, in five years, they'd say, well, we need to take more because we've got more expense. They're always going to fill this up. We need to put the PFD out of reach into the Constitution and get it off the table so that they can focus and admit that they have a problem. Uh, Yeah, and uh, I love you, Michael, but there's certain aspects of that argument that I respectfully disagree with. Um, Point number one that I would make is, uh, I think government is always going to continue to grow when you uh, elect people who aren't going to be serious about sustainable budgets, and the government always finds a way to spend money. But even if you move the PFD into the Constitution and you replace that with a broad-based tax, all you've effectively done is given the government access to new revenues in order to continually grow through a different avenue. So you don't really solve the problem that way, because if government has access to new revenues, they always have new avenues to continue to grow. Um, but now some of those same people who have been against the tax because it would affect them so harshly have more skin in the game. And instead of being all about the government spending money on programs and contracts and everything else, all of a sudden they're like, well, wait a second, that's going to hit my bottom line personally when it never did before because it was really only affecting the lower-income families proportionately. And now they're like, well, wait a second. Now you're going to take 5% of my in- my overall income? Whoa, whoa, whoa. That could put the brakes on it. And- yeah, so uh, that's a good argument. I think Senator Schauer makes that argument well. Correct me if I'm wrong, I, I believe. Um, but, you know, I tell folks I grew up in the liberal state of Washington, which isn't too far from the liberal state of California, and uh, if taxes caused people to vote Republican, then California would be voting Republican. And uh, unfortunately, when the government uh, gets a lot of access to new revenues, uh, they find ways to divide up people into different groups and provide new services. And when they do that, just like Ronald Reagan said, the longest thing to eternal life that you and I will ever see here on Earth is a government agency. So... And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. Again, putting the PFD off the table, though, would at least ensure that Alaskans are getting their share of the oil wealth uh, and give them the ability to do with that money what they need to to keep their families going. Uh, I mean, this is, a you know, this is, again, a, a difficult situation. So I'm assuming that you're not in favor, based on what you're saying right there, I'm assuming that you're not in favor of constitutionalizing the PFD at the current level or... Do you support the formula as it's written now? I mean, would you fight to have them follow the law as it sits right now? Um, I I certainly believe legislators should follow laws in the book, Michael. But I again, I think you should follow the law or change the law. But I am not in favor of constitutionalizing the dividend payment. And the reason is, is I think that if you go down that road, 
as important as the dividend is, you, you, you're going to look at other people who are going to want to constitutionalize other statutory funding formulas in our state. So when I read the state of Alaska Constitution, I see specific funding language for education. And I'm afraid that if we constitutionalize the dividend, you know, our Democrat friends are going to say, well, why don't you constitutionalize the PSA funding formula? Right. Well, you know they're, I mean? they're already forward funding education to the tune of a billion dollars. I don't know how it could get much worse from there. Let's talk about that for a second, though. The con, uh, the Constitution, the CONCON has been the, the solution that a lot of people have looked to, saying that there's not enough political will in the legislature to fix these issues. They, in fact, revel in the chaos of it. Uh, and so the discussion now is forming a constitutional convention. Do you um, do you support a constitutional convention? Uh, the the passage of that. Yeah, if the voters of this state pass a constitutional convention, I will don my armor and go to a battle for them, Michael. But I think a constitutional convention is a process that is fraught with risk, uh, and mainly because I look at our you know, ideological opposition, and they look better organized and way better funded than we are. And uh, if, if keep in mind, the legislators are the ones who would appoint the delegates unless something changes or I'm wrong. So, um, and I guess if you have issue with the current legislators and you want to go to a constitutional convention, why would you think that they would appoint better people than them to be their representatives or their delegates? Right. You see what I mean? I see what you're saying. So you don't you you don't personally support the concon, but if it was passed, you would exercise your duty, is what you're saying. Absolutely. Okay. Um, we're down to the last three and a half four minutes here. We were talking about the charter of changes. Um, uh, Will uh, supported the the first three ch- uh, changes. We were talking about the budget, and again, my supposition is we should stop picking budgets out of the air, working off last year's budgets, and just adding to it. We should stop depending on the projections of oil for that. Instead, we should either use zero based budgeting, or um, it, you know, less ideally, I guess, would be a five year rolling average of what our revenue has been for the past five years, and work off that as the base budget. Uh, and you said it's a little more complex than that. Uh, you agreed in principle, but you said that there was a lot more complex than that. I got about a minute here to figure that out. Okay, yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, how do you know the state has a spending problem when you look at budgeting, Michael? Um, and the scenario that I usually tell folks is if I took uh, oil taxes out of the picture and I took the POMV draw out of the picture, I ask myself, how much money could the state of Alaska raise through the highest income tax and the highest uh, sales tax in the nation, all right? So if we didn't have our current revenues and we had to impose large broad-based taxes, what is kind of the number that we would get if we had the highest taxes in the nation? And you can only really squeeze about 2 and a half to $3 billion in revenue in this state because of the nature of the population and income disparity if you had the highest tax in the nation, Right. right. And as you well know, we spend way beyond that, right? Right. So that's a really terrifying position to be in. Um, so I tell folks, you know, if we're going to be able to do this for the future of our kids, you have to really sit down and think about how, uh, you know, we're going to balance these spending needs versus balance these spending wants long term. You know? Right. Okay. Um, all right. I'll give you the last minute here. We're just over a minute left for your elevator pitch on why people should vote for Will Stapp for House District 32. Oh, sure. Well, you know, I, I tell folks, uh, I think I'm a pretty sensible guy. I've been a conservative 
uh, my entire life. I've active in conservative causes, and I I do a lot of volunteerism and public service in this town. Like uh, to me, you know, I tell folks I I volunteer down at the rescue mission. Um, I'm in, I've been in Rotary for 10 years. Uh, I do fundraisers for Food Bank and uh, Ring the Bell for the Salvation Army. And I think if you want to be a good representative, you're going to care about people and you're going to uh, you're going to want to be a, a, a good um, a civil servant. And uh, that's something that I've believed in my entire life, Michael, okay. and why I joined the Army. So. All right. Will Stapp for Alaska is his website, willstappforalaska.com. Will Stapp, thank you for coming on board and joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, folks, we're out of time for this hour. we got more coming up. Rob Myers up next. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. Uh, Will, we'll give you one final bite at the apple here in case there's something oh, sure. I missed, something that I didn't talk about that you wanted to hit on. Um, oh, I, I did want to mention some things, right? Um, so number one, full disclaimer, uh, John Cogdell is a friend of mine. A lot of folks support me in my campaign up here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I know John through my work at the rescue mission, uh, and I did want to let your listeners know that obviously – uh, you know, John and I have fundamental disagreements on some of the things he did in the Senate, I, a la SB 91, etc. But John is a really good man, and I, I do want your listeners to know that. Like, if you come to Fairbanks and you want to find John Coghill, uh, all you got to do is go to the Fairbanks Rescue Mission, and John's going to be working down there helping people who don't have a lot going on. Right. You know? So you, so, uh, I mean, you disagree with him on some things, but it sounds like that you're in fundamental agreement with him on the usage of the permanent fund at this point. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, look, I, I have a different philosophy of that, but I, I don't have a personal problem with changing the formula uh, to use the revenues for the, you know the a POMB fifty fifty, for example. I don't have right. any issue with changing the law to draw on the permanent fund uh, to to help fund government if need be. Uh, and that's not my preferred solution, Michael. I just, uh, I'm a practical guy, and this is how I look at problems. So usually what I tell folks is articulate to me a better idea, and I'm definitely going to listen to you. So, are, you in a, are you in agreement with the philosophy of basically giving Alaskans a leftover dividend after government has taken its bite of the apple? No, I, I think I think the dividend program, uh, you know, you, you could say it should be the first call. It's kind of a popular phrase. Um and I fundamentally think that. I mean, look, the residents should have a share in the state's oil wealth. Um, but, again, you have to be practical with the long-term problems in the state. And those things change based off fiscal dynamics. So if if we hadn't have spent all the money out of our savings accounts, Michael, I would probably give you a better answer. But the answer I'm giving you is just based on how I see the situation. And... Um, I know that's not popular, but I'm an honest guy. So right. Well, I appreciate that. And and but you've you've answered your own question. If we had not spent all that money out of savings, see the money was available. That money was not supposed to be spent. We should have balanced our budget seven years ago, but we didn't. I, and there's been I agree. there's been and no pressure to do it. About state government, Michael. I yeah. mean, you know, the CBR it was supposed to be a program that the state could balance uh, while it reduced its spending. Right. right? Which we never instead, did. You know, right. instead they just. <laughs> ran deficit. So right, exactly. Terrifying. Well, so know. that's the problem. My question has always been, why would we give the government more money when they have been so irresponsible with the money that we've given them already and the money that they've had already? 
And that's the problem. We need to starve the beast, which is another reason and another argument, I think, why the PFD needs to be put out of reach. It's the only way we're going to put pressure on them. Otherwise, they'll have this unlimited pot of money that can always go back and tap into and give us whatever's left. And eventually, there won't be any left. That's the problem. Um, it will be all of the dividend will be used on state spending, and then we'll be looking at a tax anyway. So it's uh, – um, and that, that handwriting is already on the wall at this point. But – uh, Will Stapp, uh, thank you for coming on board. I appreciate you sounding off and being honest with us and talking with us about that. Uh, thank you for calling in. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, all right. Um, the Cole Coghill thing was a little weird, but I had heard that he had the support of John Coghill, uh, and it sounds like that he is philosophically in alignment with Coghill on some things, maybe not to the 100% degree, but... You guys will have to make your own decisions. There are three candidates in that race, including um, Timothy Givens uh, and uh, excuse me, Timothy Givens and Van Lawrence. Uh, now, Van Lawrence is a registered Democrat, and it's definitely more of a big government guy. But um, yeah, uh, we'll have to get Timothy Givens on the program as well to talk about that to see what uh, comes out of it. But an interesting, uh, interesting conversation. Uh, to say the least. Um, and, and, and again, I think if somebody doesn't fundamentally understand the ownership aspect of the uh, thing, Oh, hold on. Rob Myers is calling me here. All right. Sorry. I was trying to get. Rob called me on my cell phone accidentally, so we're getting him on the getting him on the line here. Um, we're going to get things uh, squared away, but yeah, I mean, I I just um, I I don't know if identifying with Coghill in that way is going to be helpful to his campaign. Although there will be, I mean, that could form the moderate split. Uh, that could, I mean, in the in the end of the race, it could be Will and Timothy splitting the vote and allowing Van to get in there. That would be an interesting take, but. We'll have to see. We'll have to see what happens, and we'll see what happens uh, when we talk to uh, when we talk to Tim uh, about that as well. Uh, all right. It sounds like it uh, looks like we've got uh, Rob Myers on the uh, up on the uh, uh, phone right now. You with us, Rob? I'm here and ready and able, sir. Okay, good. Um, did you get a chance to listen to that mining chance? I I did. I've been okay. listening since you came on this morning. Okay, interesting. Um, we may get your take on some of the ideas, at least, uh, maybe not specifically. But anyway, I, I, I want to kind of revisit some of this because I I find it fascinating when people see things so completely differently than I do, especially when it comes down to the ownership aspect of the state. Um, I, 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 you know, when you don't understand the owner model, it's a problem. And, uh, and I think that's the same thing that we face with people like Randy in the chat room and other things is that... Uh, you know, they don't understand the ownership aspect of that because it is unique. I mean, we're the only state in the nation that has that. It's uh, And so it's hard sometimes for people to wrap their brain around. Look, I didn't write the Constitution. It does have quasi-socialistic aspects of it. I didn't write it, but by God, I'm going to live by it when it gets here and uh, what the framers intended for that. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that as well. Rob uh, Meyer is our guest, and we're going to be talking with him here in just a hot second. Hot second. Uh, Don't go anywhere. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Hour two right now. 
Whoa, buddy, put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Across the world on the interwebs uh, at MichaelDukesShow.com, where you'll find everything, including the podcast and social media links, and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or translator. Hour two of this Thursday edition of The Michael Dukes Show. Thank you for coming in and joining us. We just finished up with Will Stapp, who is a GOP candidate for District 32 up in the interior. If you missed it, you can always go back and watch it on Facebook or listen to it on the podcast. Uh, It's an interesting conversation uh, in that regard. Uh, But now we're changing gears. Uh, We're still up in the interior, but now we're moving out more towards the North Pole area, my old stomping ground. Joining us on the phone right now is our guest, GOP State Senator for District B until january then it becomes district q it is rob myers uh who joins us right now for our discussions good morning rob how are you oh good morning michael still waking up a little bit work had me up late yesterday i didn't get home till about 11 o'clock last night oh sorry about that i appreciate you coming on and sacrificing a little bit of shut eye for this um i appreciate it um so rob i guess you just said you'd listen to the show this morning Mm -hmm. um and i guess you know, let's talk for just a second before we get too deep into the weeds on other things about, you know, the philosophy of the owner state. And this is such a unique property. A lot of people have their, their a hard time wrapping their brains around it because we are a very unique state in that all resources are collectively owned corporately by the people. Um, and that was a problem. I mean, Hammond saw it in the first few years after the oil boom started, uh, you know, statehood was was still, you know, within people's lifetime and they saw the oil boom take off and they saw the out of control spending and Hammond and company said, look, this is all corporately owned. We've got to find a way for people to have a share of that wealth instead of giving it all to government and letting government run amok. Uh, and that's why they created the permanent fund dividend. That's why it was first call on the money. That's why it was supposed to be a transfer, not an appropriation. And um, people still have a hard time wrapping their heads around that uh, and understanding that that first call, that there was a reason for that. Um, give me your thoughts on that. Well, you know, I, what I keep going back to is what happens when when governments own resources <clears throat> like like ours does technically on paper. If, if you don't have it as the government owning the resource in in trust for the people and, and the government just owns it outright, what happens? Well, you know, we've seen some of that already in our state. Um, you know, we, we had the, the mineral rights go to the state at statehood with the statehood compact. And for about uh, for about the first decade or so, uh, oil made up about 15 to 20 percent of our, our state revenue. It was that I supplement, you know, as being a very small population state, um, not a, not a lot of economic activity it was a nice supplement to the to the state budget. 
And then when oil got discovered up on the slope, all of a sudden oil jumped up to 90% or, or so of our state budget. And that's with our state budget jumping up by about four times as to what it had been. And it's, it's grown, you know, some more since then. Right. And it's, it's just, it's just crazy because if you give the government access to all of that money, government, as you said earlier, government will expand to fill and spend all of that available money. And so, you know, the, you, you, you need to solve two problems there. One is how do you keep government small? And you do that in part, as you said, by starving the beast. And the second question is, how do you grow the economy outside of the oil industry and outside of government? And what you have to do to do that is you have to take some of that natural resource wealth and funnel it to individuals so that individuals can make their own best decisions uh, of how that money should be invested and how it can expand out, outward. If you look at other states, whether you're talking about something like Texas or Pennsylvania, where individuals can own subsurface rights, that is what has happened. They have taken that money and invested it outward and expanded the the rest of the economy outside of the oil industry. And they've done it at a better job than than the the, the government would. Right. So you see, you see both more diversity and you see larger growth and, and it, it comes down to the power of the individual. If you don't harness the power of the individual, everything's going to be stagnant. Well, and you're a student of history and you've done some interesting, um, you've done some interesting research. I mean, I, I had talked about it for a few years, but you really brought it into focus. People have to remember that the first time we received a royalty payment in the state and the royalty payment was around $900 million, almost a billion dollars like right out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Um, the state budget at that point was $160 million. That was the whole mm-hmm. state budget. So they received a royalty payment that was five times what the annual state budget was. And of course, if you extrapolate, you actually did the math and extrapolated that budget out and said if they had just stayed at that state budget rate and extrapolated out for inflation and regular growth and everything else, we'd only have a budget of about what? I think it was $2.5 or $2.7 billion or something like that. Yeah, it was something close to that. I'd have to go find my numbers again. They're sitting on my computer somewhere. But but yeah, I mean, so, yeah. but here we are at a five and a half billion dollar spend. Almost sit well this year was six plus billion dollar spend with everything that they were doing, uh-huh. and and they act like well, this is the smallest possible government we can live with. It's only gotten to this point because again, government will expand to to consume all available revenue, and that's what happened. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely the case. You give government the access to the oil money and and this is this is what you end up with you end up with government growth you know you go back to when they first created the permanent fund itself and hammond wanted it to be 50 percent because in rather than 25 percent of the royalties because he saw exactly that problem that that the government would just take all the money and continue to spend it as fast as possible and so he wanted it to be 50 percent going into the permanent fund and he you know he had to do arm twisting just to get 25 percent because the legislature didn't want to get give up the access to the money right he wanted to stop it. yeah no absolutely and i think that's why people have a they have such a hard time with the idea of ownership and first call and everything else um starving the beast is really the only solution now would that force them as, as even will just supposed in the last hour in your mind would that force them to look at taxes 
I mean, I think the potential is there, but there's also the political ramifications of trying to pass an income tax when people are like, well, wait, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Maybe we should now seriously look at cutting the size and scope of government. And that, I think, is one of the problems. I mean, that's that's one of the things that needs to happen. Right. You know, and, and, and a lot of when you would get a tax would depend heavily on what kind of circumstances you were in. If we, if we for example, last year, when oil prices were in the tank, if we had said, all right, we're going to we're going to go ahead and constitutionalize the PFD last year. And, you know, even if we did it at the 50 50 model instead of the statutory model, then, yeah, we would have turned into a tax right away. Uh, but if we if we do it this year or next year, would that happen? Mm, probably not right away. It may in the future. It might. Um, if I remember right, uh, Brad Keithley did the numbers and said, if you uh, if you did the 50 50 model, uh, you wouldn't fall back into deficit at current spending levels until about 2027. So that'd give us a couple of years to look at it and say, all right, are we going to reduce our spending or are we going to institute a tax? And that's going to be a, and that's going to be the argument within the state. You know, and again, as I've said before, that's an argument that every state has, and we shouldn't necessarily shy away from it because, you know, what what other reason do we have to reduce our state spending right now other than to take the money away and to threaten people with saying, well, either reduce spending or we're going to take it out of your pocketbook. And it's a it's a significant problem that, that, that we've run into and we've ignored for so stinking long. And, and, you know, we have to we have to face up to it. If we want a smaller government, then let's look at people and say, well, you know, if you want a larger government, then then you have to pay for it. Right. Well, <clears throat> and I again, I think you're right. I think it's not an argument that we can shy away from. Um, and it does, as Brad Keithley talked about, it does put skin in the game for every Alaskan uh, if it's a broad-based task instead of just passing it on uh, the, the the bulk of the burden on pers- in, a, in a percentile argument uh, to the lower 50% of income earners in the state. They're disproportionately being affected by this at this time. Um, we were talking about whether or not that you know we're currently taxed. I mean, my argument is it may not be an official tax, but it is a de facto tax by taking those monies that are owed to Alaskans by law to taking those monies and uh, and using them for government. That is a tax. Uh, whether you, whether you want to say semantically, it, it doesn't match exactly, but it is a de facto tax. There's there's two definitions of tax here, and this is part of the problem that we run into with the, the discussion. There's the legal definition of tax and the economic definition of tax. And the legal definition of tax is, you know, your income taxes to the feds. It's something that you pay to the government because they tell you to in order to fund state services. And if you don't, they put a gun to your head for you. That's the the legal definition of tax. The economic definition of tax is taking the money out of the economy, and whether that's done through a through a, a straight legal tax or it's done, done in some other manner, it's the economic definition of a tax. And I think one of the things that we have to face up to in this state is that we can we can make arguments about freedom and about about what government has the power to do with a with a legal definition of a tax, but with what government is able to do with the money later from an economic definition of a tax, even if it isn't necessarily a legal definition of a tax, might actually be worse because if a government can grow without having to look at its citizens and without having to pay attention to what's going on in the rest of the economy, that might actually be worse. You know, if you, if you look at a government, <clears throat> normally for a government to grow that, that is, is funded through regular taxes primarily, 
it has to have two things. One, it has to have some trust of the people that it is going to spend the money wisely and it's going to spend the money largely how the people want the, the government to be spending it. And two, it has to make sure that the economy is doing fairly well in order to get that tax revenue. And what we are very much in danger of becoming in this state is we are in danger of having a trust fund government. And we're going to have a we could potentially have a government that's getting its money out of the permanent fund. And it doesn't have to have the trust of the people. And it doesn't have to make sure that the government or the, that the private sector is is growing. It, right. The, well, the it does. It doesn't even it, it doesn't even have to have the permission of the people. Exactly. That's the thing. I mean, it's it's disconnected from the governance of the people by just saying, well, we can make this decision willy nilly. We don't even have to. I mean, it's just it 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 is it, it is a taking. I mean, it is literally taxation without representation at this point. Exactly. You know, and, and as bad as taxes are, I'm not going to sit here and argue with you until you have taxes a good thing. Taxes are always bad, but, you know, that, that this is life. Sometimes you choose between bad choices. Um, <clears throat> what I am going to tell you, though, is that a tax is something that is a lot easier for us to fight because we can fight the tax uh, with a, an initiative or a referendum to stop it from being increased. We fight taxes in, in the same way by, by you know, um, by changing out people. And, and, and a tax would have to be a an actual affirmative action by the government. It actually has to take action in order to take a tax. Whereas what it's getting from a permanent fund is passive income. It, right. it, it, this is just coming in because it's been invested and it's going to sit there. And as long as we have, have smart managers over there at the permanent fund corporation, we're going to continue to get that money and it's a passive income and it's going to passively continue to grow. And, and the state can benefit off of that and continue to grow itself. Right. Exactly. And it will grow and it will continue to grow. And of course, they'll always look for new options and new revenues. Again, I keep going back to that original state budget and how it should be, you know, a half or almost a third of what it is now. But we keep getting told that we couldn't possibly cut back uh, on what we had. We've cut it to the bone, so to speak. You know, one, one little bit about that, that, uh, or, you know, that original state budget and what happened when we first got that that first lease payment of, of a little under a billion dollars there. Um, it, it's a little instructive to me. So they took that first 900 and some odd million dollars and they threw it in the bank and then they started spending it, you know, pretty quickly. And at first the oil company said, Oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to get the pipeline up and running. We're going to have oil flowing by about 1972. And then you run into the lawsuits, you run into engineering challenges. They don't finish the pipeline until 77, which means that the state doesn't start getting the royalties directly off of the oil until then. But the state had already taken that $900 million and spent it so dang fast and had not paid attention to what else was possible down the road that by about 1974, 1975, they were running out of money again. So they looked at the oil companies and they said, hey, uh, we're going to put in this little temporary reserves tax because – we can't figure out how to drop our state budget down. We're, we're spending so stinking much money, and y'all are taking so long getting this pipeline going that, that we're going to just institute this temporary tax, and then we'll get rid of it, and then we'll start uh, getting the, the royalties and the severance tax instead. And that, so that's what happened is they had two years where they funded the government off of the this this reserves tax that they had because they had run out of that early that that early um lease sale payment right they'd grown the government to the size of the revenue they were expecting and it didn't show up and then they were in a panic exactly yeah 
No, I mean, again, this is the short-sightedness of government, and that's what, you know, that was kind of what Hammond's comments were at the times, that they went through that money so fast it made drunken sailors look bad. And uh, and that is the nature. That is the nature of government. Rob Myers is our guest, uh, GOP state senator from District B, which is going to become District Q here. The election season is open. He's running for re-election. We're going to talk with him about some of his ideas, what he'd like to see in the legislature moving forward. We're going to continue with him here in just a moment. we got more coming up in just a second. Our continuation of our discussion and more. Don't forget, you can join us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash Michael Duke Show, if you'd like to be part of the chat room. We'll have conversations with Rob during the break, and then we'll be back with more. Rob Myers right here on the Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based rethinking radio we're broadcasting live through a series of tubes allowing all of these entities to provide streaming stuff going on on the the, the internet well it's kind of hard to explain sorry streaming live every weekday morning on facebook live and michaeldukesshow.com Okay, we're in the break uh, with Rob Myers uh, right now, uh, and we're <clears throat> we, you know, we got kind of a unique position here because Rob is uh, you know from the district. He ran against John Coghill. He's in that same district right now, and it seems like there's still uh, an attempt to exercise some of those political, some of that political influence in these areas. You could see him supporting certain. Races, you could see, uh, you know, the the John's uh, support of the anti constitutional convention group, uh, mm-hmm. and more. We're seeing the same thing down here with Geisel running again and everything else. Um, what are your thought? What are you hearing from your constituency on this, Rob? I mean, on the past, obviously, they believe that you were the right man for the job. They were not happy with the actions that uh, that John had taken in the past, and yet it seems like they're continuing to try and grapple for control of this uh, situation and go back to the business as usual. What are you hearing from your constituency? Well, you know, I'm, I, I guess right now the easiest way to, to define that is to look at who is has filed against me. Now, the filing deadline passed last week. Um, I had heard that there was kind of more of the moderate business as usual types were looking for a candidate to file against me, and, and they didn't. Um, I've got two candidates who have filed against me. Uh, one is... Well, he's listed as nonpartisan, but, you know, there, it looks like they're pulling the old uh, disguising the Democrat trick again. Um, I, I don't know the man. My understanding is he's a longtime NEA guy, um, filed at the last minute against me. Um, and the the other guy um, I've, I've talked to once, his name's uh, Arthur Surkov. He's a uh, he's part of the Alaska Independence Party. And um, he told me he's he said that, you know, it looks like, you know, he and I agree on shoot 98 percent of things. And stuff, and all all the big issues, the PFD and the budget and things like that, we agree on. But um, you know, he said he's running because he wants to uh, to uh, up his his name recognition and the name recognition for the AIP. And well, I can I can understand that. And 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 you know, running for office is is one way to do that. Um, so you know, the the fact that that the um, kind of the the moderate business as usual type didn't have a candidate against me that that tells me that that my district is probably pretty happy with what i'm doing at least the new portion of the district right exactly 
Um, you know, I, I think that what we're seeing right now, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, but I've made this assertion more and more recently, is that, you know, look, we've had we've been in this crisis mode for seven years with the taking of the permanent fund and everything else. And the argument has been we need to take the permanent fund off the table because that's sucking up all the oxygen in the room, et cetera, et cetera. We need to focus on the budgets. Um, and, you know, we've been trying to find a solution to this. And I've come to the conclusion that it seems like the business as usual crowd, the pro-government, uh, you know, pro-government spend crowd, anti-PFD crowd, that they don't have any interest in fixing it because they revel in the chaos that this crisis creates. Because they're able to do things that, you know, if 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 the problem was solved, they would be backed into a corner and have to understand that they would have a limited amount of revenues and resources to deal with. And so they have no interest in fixing the problem. They, they want the chaos to continue. You think I'm wrong? I, I, I don't know about if I would describe it as, as wanting the chaos to continue, but they are, are liking certain portions of the results of how it's concentrating money. Uh, more money into the hands of the legislature. You know, I'll, g- I'll give you an option, and, and maybe we want to put this again on the radio. But so for the two years that I have been in office, in the first year, when we first came into office, we said, well, shoot, if you take the current budget and you cut the dividend completely, we were still $300 million in the hole. And we got bailed out partly by oil prices came up a little bit and partly by uh, the Fed's uh, rescue package. And so that was the first year. The second year, oil prices have gone up so stinking much that we could have taken all of last year's budget and funded the entire thing without a draw on the permanent fund, except for the draw for the dividend. And what did we do? We still took a draw on the permanent fund so that we could increase last year's budget as well as increasing this year's budget. Right. And, you know, and I and, and to that end, when we were doing our budget amendments on the floor, I ran a a budget amendment to say, well, let's just let's drop the draw on the permanent fund because our state doesn't need it right now. And everybody looked at me and said, why would we do that? And and so that uh, that I, I have to go back to double check the the vote on that amendment. But I think it was something like seven to 12 or, or something <clears throat> like that. You know, it, it obviously failed. But hold, hold on, Rob. Hold on. We'll, we'll continue this here in just a second. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. All right, continuing now, Rob Myers is our guest. Uh, During the break, we were talking about a variety of things, but one of the things we talked about was this crisis goes on, and I think a lot of them have a vested interest. A lot of the business-as-usual crowd has a vested interest in, um, you know, keeping the chaos going because it allows them, or the crisis going, because it allows them to do the things that they need to do to take that money. Um, And uh, Rob was going into a little bit of the history of this and talking about his first year and his second year, and how things were different. Rob, go ahead. We can repeat that part. Sure. So my first year in office, you know, you come January of last year, when I come into office, we took a look at the budget and the the revenue that had been projected uh, back in the fall. And we said, okay, if we take the current budget and uh, we eliminate the dividend entirely, the budget was still $300 million underfunded, give or take. And what ended up bailing us out a little bit there was oil prices came up some, and then uh, the the feds had that that ARPA the uh, rescue plan package to the states, and and the state got about a billion dollars out of that. 
And uh, so we, we funded our budget and we funded a $1,000 dividend and uh, including a little bit of draw on, the, on savings. Um, then this year, we could have taken basically that same budget and we could have said, you know, with, with the oil money that was coming in this year, we could have funded that entire budget by uh, without a draw on the permanent fund, with the exception of the draw on the funds for the dividend itself. There would have been no need for a draw from the permanent fund on government. And what did we do instead? We, we took that draw in. We took that draw anyway, and we upped this year's budget. We dramatically upped last year's budget with the supplemental. And so when the budget hit the Senate floor, I ran an amendment to eliminate that draw uh, for government and said, no, no, we don't need this. Leave the money where it is, you know, give, give the dividend out to the people, let the rest of it sit in the permanent fund and continue to grow. And people kind of went, well, I, I don't understand why we're doing this. This is how we fund our government. And I'm like, well, if you fund your government this way, the inevitable result is just going to be more growth. So, um, I ran that amendment and, and I have to go back to double check the, the, um, the the uh, a vote on that but i'm wanting to say it was like seven to twelve uh, against and and so you know we continued the the draw off of the permanent fund even though the government didn't need it and the inevitable result gee what a shocker you give government more money the government spends more money so um you know i, I you, you you have to address this and you have to realize that that permanent fund growth is just steroids for the growth of our government if the government is funded off of the permanent fund Right. Uh, I mean, the dream of many, and we've heard some legislators talk about this, is that the goal is to get the the, uh, permanent fund itself to the $100 million mark so that it will continually generate enough revenue, uh, you know, in perpetuity to pay for all state governments. So they don't have to go to any other solution for this. Uh, Of course, that would be barring some kind of huge economic crash or something else. But I mean, that's what the ideal is. And then that, again, takes away all the responsibility of having to check in with the people or deal with the people or get their permission or anything else. Government just continues unabated. And as it continues to grow and the draw continues to grow because the fund continues to grow, government just gets larger and larger. A hundred billion, not a hundred billion, a hundred billion dollars. Right. And, and, you know, this is something I, I talk to people about is, you know, when I, when I hear people say, well, we should, we should cut the dividend so that we don't have to tax and then, you know, we go to that model of, you know, we get that $100 billion dividend, and that means that $5 billion every year can go to fund government. And, and I go, okay, that sounds fine. But then what happens when we have a repeat of the 2008 crash? You know, in the 2008 crash, the, the permanent fund lost a third of its value. Now, fortunately, we made that back in about three years. But for those couple of years there, if the permanent fund lost a third of its value, then what would we do? Would we would we cut our government? Well, probably not a whole lot, at least not according to current track record. So we would be ending the dividend and then putting in a tax. Right. And so, you know, we're going to have that discussion at some point in the future. It, it's going to happen. It's just a question of when based on the economics. Right. Better to have it now when we have a parachute of excess revenue and some other things to be able to back us up and we have time to do it in a timely manner instead of doing it all under pressure and under that time compression that we talk about where they use it as a weapon. It's the same kind of thing. If you have to do it under pressure, you know, bad decisions are made and usually it's some kind of emotional decision as well. It's not necessarily the best way to do business. Yeah, exactly. 
Rob Myers is our guest, uh, GOP state senator for District B. He's the incumbent. Um, <clears throat> District Q is what it's going to become. So let's talk about the coming year here, Rob. Um, you're seeing, again, I mean, a huge number of legislators have just pulled the ripcord and they're out. Uh, some others have pulled and moved from one body, attempting to move uh, into the Senate from the House as well. But this leaves us with a huge number of seats that have no incumbent. There will be a huge changing of the players. Um, but is it? do we have the right candidates in place to get the legislature that probably you and I would be philosophically aligned on, a smaller government legislature? Or what? what's your, as you look at this and you look at how it's lining up, what's your take on it? Well, I look at some of the seats, and and you know, I, I I will I will freely admit, you know, again, I'm I'm relatively new at this game. I've only been doing this for a couple of years, and so I don't have the contacts across the state that some people do. You know, down in the Matsu or in Anchorage or Kenai, um, and, and some of the other places. So I, I look at what we've got across uh, the interior, and I, I've done a little bit of research into a couple of the Senate candidates. Um, best case scenario. Uh, in the Senate, I think we can probably pick up uh, two kind of, of um, you know, limited government, support the permanent fund type candidates um, uh, across the state. As far as the House goes, I, I, I don't know all that well. Um, I, I look at it here in the interior. You, um, we've got two retiring out of the interior. here. you got Steve Thompson, who's retiring. You just talked to one candidate, Will Stapp. Uh, the other candidate who's retiring is Adam Wool. Um, his district is, well, it was a blue district and it got bluer with redistricting. So, um, you know, we've, we actually have a couple of good candidates in that race, but they've got a very uphill battle in, in order to make it to the legislature. So, um, you know, I, I think as, as, you know, Suzanne Downing and a couple of others have done some analysis on it, we've got a shot at, at getting a Republican House back, which would be good. Would we get a smaller government pro PFD house back? Mm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure about that yet. Um, it, you know, and especially with the you know the rank choice voting, or I guess more less the rank choice voting, more so the jungle primary portion of it, where we're going to have in a lot of these races, we're going to have two Republicans making it all the way to the general. But it, exactly, you know how that that lines out. That's that's hard for for me to say. I, again, I just don't know. Uh, a lot of the areas outside of the interior well enough to say how things are going to go there. Right. If you, uh, and as you look at it, and in fact, Suzanne Downing wrote about this too, that the Senate is actually going to be even more divisive. I mean, they've had a quarter of their membership is essentially retired mm -hmm. um, and including the presiding officer and the majority leader. So there's going to be a shakeup there. Uh, you saw what happened with this last caucus, this caucus of equals, which, I mean, you're, my hat's off to you guys for remaining together on that because it was such a hot mess and obviously not a caucus of equals, not pulling together in the same direction. Uh, any predictions on what you see in the Senate this go-around? Uh, you know, I, I can see a couple of different possibilities coming out of it, um, you know, depending on how the election goes. Um, you know, if we can get nine decent conservatives, maybe ten decent conservatives out of it, I think that would put the, the kibosh on the possibility of a coalition. Uh, would it be a little bit uneasy? Yeah, possibly. You know, if we let's say we ended up with nine decent conservatives out of a total of, of 12, 
you know, 12 Republicans, uh, you know, it'd be a little bit of an uneasy coalition, but I think the conservative wing would be a little stronger than it was this last time around. If we end up with eight conservatives, but, um, you know, out of out of 12 Republicans, then there's a possibility that we we go back to coalition like we were in uh, a dozen years ago. And, um, you know, it puts us I think you were discussing it with with Brad and a couple of others a couple, uh, a couple of days ago. And, and that puts us into a situation again where, you know, the governor has been fighting the House the last four years. Well, the, he might get the House in line, but then he'd be fighting the Senate again. So um, it, it, there, there, there are a couple of very stark, very different possibilities out there, and and really focusing on a couple, a uh, couple, three key Senate races around the state are really going to to make a significant <clears throat> difference. And of course, the coalition uh, or the uh, the caucus, whether it's a coalition or a straight party caucus, either one. I mean, the the biggest positions are going to be on things like you know Senate finance, and we've seen you know Stedman for the last you know I don't know half dozen, six, seven years has been part of that uh, issue, and that was like one of the mandates for forming the caucus. Do you think there's a support for that anymore, based on what we've seen coming out of these budgets over the last uh, couple of years? Or do you think that there may be a, a change there? I mean, would you support putting the same players back into the Finance Committee, which has the majority of the power in the Senate? Would you support that? Well, I, I think for for myself and, and a number of others, I guess the best way to put it is that there is – so much distrust and rancor, and there is so much of a difference in vision and philosophy that it'd be it'd be hard to support that. Um, you know, when, when we organized two years ago, you know, we had a lot of discussions about who was going into different positions, and we had a lot of discussions about how we behave within the caucus. And and the discussion that never really happened, um, and this is probably going to surprise some people, but the discussion that never really happened was. Why are we getting together as a caucus to begin with? What are our caucus goals going to be? And, you know, what's what's the intent here? Whether we're talking about the budget or we're talking about other things, you know, we could be talking about crime or education or something else. You know, we didn't have a whole lot of caucus discussion uh, about what our goals were going to be. It, it just kind of became, well, we've all got an R at the end of our name. So I guess that means we're going to caucus together. And And that was the assumption. And you know, from, from me going into it as a freshman, I kind of sat there and watched for a lot of it and I chimed in occasionally, but you know, I, I didn't really try to direct the conversation and, and, you know, this time around, I think that's going to be, you know, kind of key for me is, is, you know, when, it, when we get sit down to, to form a caucus, I'm going to, I want to look at people and say, what are our goals? What do we agree on? Why are we here? Because I think as we've seen, just having an R at the end of your name doesn't necessarily mean that you agree on things. Right, and, and that's got to that's got to be first and foremost in the discussion. I would, I mean, I would definitely, uh, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, it is surprisingly, specifically given the fact that I mean, you guys did not have a caucus meeting this last session until what the last two weeks or something was the first caucus meeting that you guys had when it was all said and done. I mean, there was. I, I think- um, and remembering back, I think we had one like the beginning of April or something like that. And it wasn't even all of us because a few people were out of town. Um, but yeah, I think, I think for the, the entire session, I think we had two caucus meetings, three, it wasn't much. Yeah. And so again, showing that we're not necessarily all on the same sheet of paper here. Uh, and, and, and again, we saw some of the divisiveness that you were talking about. Um, with bill passages and things being sat on. I and mean, we were all supposed to be taking care of each other and working together. And instead, we saw this tug of war. And, of course, the Finance Committee was wielding that big club. And that's how we ended up with a 
budget that is six and a, and a supplemental budget for last year, adding another billion dollars to that budget as well. It is right. it's astonishing. It is absolutely astonishing. All right. Well, I want to continue to talk with uh, Rob Myers, uh, who is our guest now. We're going to talk with him uh, in just a moment about uh, what he is going to be focused on in this election and in this next session. And uh, we'll get to, we'll get his pitch on why he should go back again. So it'll be a fun conversation. Rob Myers, our guest, the Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. Our light, our guide, and our trusted friend. Okay, Rob Myers is our guest uh, here in the program. I just saw this. I just saw this question in thread. I just want to go back to it here, Rob. I'll get your hot take on it here. Mm-hmm. Um, people talking about uh, well, Floyd has talked about this several times, using Venezuela as the model of creating a refinery and refining Alaskan products and having a state-owned refinery and all this other kind of stuff. Um, but the problem is, of course, is that giving the government you know, all I have to do to look at how government runs things efficiently is look at the DMV or the post office. And, uh-huh. that, and I realize that they're not they're not great at that kind of stuff. Your thoughts on uh, creating some kind of state-run or state-owned infra- – I mean, we'd all like to have a, a – you know, let's face it. If we had a gas refinery here in the state uh, that, you know, that offered some competition, we might be seeing some cheaper gas prices. We might be able to see some things that would benefit the state – but having the state on it, I think, is, uh, wow, uh, problematic to say the least. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, you can look at, you know, let's let's say we look at the Alaska Gas Line Development Corporation. You know, we've had that, that state-owned corporation for 10 years now, and uh, are we any closer to a gas line? Yeah, uh, and how many, million, how many millions have they sucked up? Right, exactly. And, and you know, I, I look at a, a refinery the same way. I go, okay, all right, that's that's great, guys. The state can put it in a refinery and I can see us having two two arguments there. One is somebody's going to sue the state and say, oh, well, this guy benefits the guys in the rail belt and on the road system. It doesn't benefit really the, the people off of the road system much, or it, or it might not even benefit Southeast for that matter. You know, it might benefit just the rail belt and Southeast still gets its gas out of, out of Cherry Point or something like that. And so somebody's going to sue the state and say, well, we're violating our constitution because it doesn't benefit it does, it's not a maximum benefit to all of the residents of the state. The other problem that I see there is, all right, that, that sounds like a great idea. Let's make everybody in the state dependent on their gas and diesel and their heating oil dependent on the state um, and, and, you know, whatever state subsidy and whatever else. I mean, that sounds like another great way to just grow government to me. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I, we're looking for ways to pare down on government, not give it more excuses to create more bureaucracies and more hierarchies and everything else that would just, again, eventually suck up all the money in the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this this whole thing is... Uh, is is uh, just is is just crazy that ideal uh to say the least um let me ask you uh, quick rob so we're in the break uh, right now so let's uh, but let me ask you your greatest disappointment this last session as you looked at again the infighting and of course we've had lots of conversations with shower about some of his bills that he just bled sweat and teared for and yet they ended up just never being heard or being sidelined and you know mm-hmm. but your greatest you know your greatest um disappointment in this last session what what when you go back and look at it in hindsight 
What do you see being the biggest the biggest thing for you? Honestly, I, I think it's just that we didn't take up the, the fiscal plan working group framework or, or any other model for that matter as, as you know, a, a look forward into the future. You know, we, we, we got so dang short-sighted and, and, you know, we, we didn't want to do it in August because, well, we don't need to do it now. We can, we can do it next year. And then come this year, it's, it's, oh, well, we just have to finish this year's budget. And, and, you know, we put it off and we put it off and put it off. And so it doesn't get done. And we, we have to plan for the future. We are in one of those moments that happen about once a generation where you have to sit down and reevaluate how a government operates, what you're, you expect it to do, how you expect to fund it. And, and, and we're in that moment and we have to take that moment. We can't just slide through inertia into the next phase of our state um, because the, the end result of that is going to be disaster. And, and we have to sit down and think about, all right, what's this going to do to our state budget, our state's economy over the next 20, 30, 40 years? Well, that's probably and, and, that's probably the biggest thing, right, is this lack of long-term vision. It seems yeah, like I'm, every decision is made on the two-year or the four-year cycle instead of what does this do 20 years from now? Yeah, exactly. We don't we, we don't plan ahead. You know, that was one of the things that I, I thought about with this year's budget. Last year's budget, you know, we were so, so dang broke with the oil prices in the toilet and stuff that, that you know, we were all in crisis mode. And, and this year, as, as the oil prices came up, it's like, oh, okay, maybe we've got a little breathing room to sit down and, and actually, um, you know, put a little money into savings and think about this long term. And what do we do instead? Well, we spend all the money and we don't make any, any long term plans and, and we're not thinking about it, at, you know, the, the 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road that we need to. You know, we're, we're being politicians, not statesmen. Yeah. I, uh, I, you know, I've been frustrated more. <clears throat> With the you know with the formation of the of the caucus and promises that were made or implied and all these kind of things and then the inability to hold people accountable when they did not do the things that they were supposed to do and to me uh-huh. that's a failure of leadership because the leader is supposed to be able to enforce and take care of those things and we've seen people be unilaterally make a lot of those decisions and I just think this whole thing has been a failure of leadership on so many levels it's 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 just so frustrating to watch. Um, hold the line, Rob. We're about to jump back into it. Uh, folks, like and share this video. Please go onto YouTube and hit the subscribe button and ring the bell. I'm looking for a thousand subscribers on YouTube, but I need your help. So go out there and do that if you haven't done it yet. Let's jump back into it. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. All right, we're back now. Um, Rob Myers is our guest, GOP state a senator for District B, which is going to become District Q uh, this next year. Rob, what is your, um, you know, what's going to be your focus? I mean, what's going to be your focus on the campaign trouble? What's also going to be your focus after you're reelected and, and you're looking at it? What are you looking at as a way to fix all the things that we just spent the last 40 minutes talking about? What it, you know? What is your magic bullet for all this stuff? Well, you know, I think I want to go back a little bit to what we were just talking about in the break. Is you know, I want to focus on okay, what are the trends in our state that are happening, and what's our state going to look like in twenty, thirty, forty years, and how do we set that up? You know, find your end state and work backwards from it to figure out 
where we need to, what we need to do now in order to get us there. And what I want to see in 30 or 40 years is I want to see a, a government that is smaller. I want to see a thriving private sector. I want to see a, a economy that is, is more diversified. And what a lot of that comes down to me is the power of the individual, getting the resources of our state into the hands of individuals and, and letting people make the decisions rather than the state government. And so for that reason, uh, you know, I'm focusing, you know, of course, there's some some focus on my race, uh, but I'm also looking at, you know, trying to find other candidates around the interior here that share some of that vision that I, I, I want to, you know, focus on the Constitutional Convention. Um, as I said in the break, you know, we're we're at one of these inflection points that happen about once a generation that that, you know, some sort of, of large shock hits that that makes you rethink. All right. What's our government supposed to do? How's our economy operate? How do we fund our government? You know, things, you know, very, very fundamental questions of that nature. And the, the last time we had that shock was in the 70s when the oil money first hit. And, right, right. you know, the, the thing about having money is that everybody's happy about it. And so, yeah, there were some fights, but, you know, they were largely able to figure out, all right, what are we going to do moving forward? Well, now... Now we're we're running out of money because the oil the the production has gone down. Oil prices are up temporarily. We know they're up temporarily. They're going to come back down um, because of market uh, forces around the world. And so we've got this this time period right here where we can sit down and we go, all right, what do what should we look like moving forward? And we we have to have that discussion. Otherwise, we're going to just slide slide through inertia into uh, you know, trying to, to do the same thing that we've been doing and hoping that the 1980s come back and it's it's just not going to happen. Right, right. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting those different results, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's literally what we're coming down to at this point. Um, you know, we have to, and, and we've talked about this for a long time, and it just doesn't seem to be the political will to reduce the size and scope of government. And again, you've done the numbers. You've run the numbers on this. And you've uh-huh. seen that if we'd kept the same governmental growth that we had when we received that first payment for the first leases and royalties, you know, we would be at about $2.7 billion. But instead, we're at six plus. And, right. and uh, you know, this idea that somehow we can't cut into government um, is I mean, it's ridiculous to most of us. But there's just not the political will to move that needle. Is there a way in your mind to try and start that conversation in a realistic way to skip past all the hyperbole and and get to the the root cause of that? Well, you know, that's that's something that that I've I've concentrated on the last couple of years is, you know, I I came into office running two years ago saying we need to cut our government and and here's some things that we need to look at. And, and, you know, the, the ideas of how to do it are out there. You know, we, we talk about, you know, looking at the education funding formula and whether that's set up the, the right way. Or we talk about, uh, you know, you had, had your previous guest was on talking about, you know, trying to reduce uh, health care costs around the state and, and you know, and, and how much money that could save us. And, and you know, that's accurate. And um, the problem is that that there's two problems we have to face here. There's the math problem, which is what we're talking about. And there's the political problem, which is why would we want to do that? And unfortunately, we, we can come up with a ton of ways to help solve the math problem. But until we solve the political problem, none of those are going to go anywhere. And and that's, you know, one thing that I saw down in general the last two years is that there wasn't the will 
there there wasn't the 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 political solution for people to want to change things. And so right. I'm looking at the structure of of our our government and saying, all right, how do we change our structure so that people will want to right. reduce the size of government? And one way one way that we do that is we constitutionalize the PFD so that we get that money off of the table and and we can't keep using that as as our 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 uh, safety valve or our crutch or what you know pick your metaphor there of well we'll just pull it out of the PFD to to make up the the what we can't uh, get otherwise so that 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 gets off the table and then we can sit down and have that spending and taxes discussion that every state has to have and and you know figure figure out what we're going to do you know we've we've got a lot of of people in this state that are, are materially invested in the size and the growth of government. And we have to address that and say, how do we create a state that's got a private sector that it, that works well outside of the government, not works well because government is funding it behind the scenes. Right, exactly. And each year that we wait and each year that we put this off, it becomes harder and harder because uh-huh. government continues to grow. And with that growth creates new dependency constituencies groups of people who depend on that government spending and whether that's on the welfare side of the equation for lower income people or services or Medicaid or whether it's the corporate cronyism that we see from major corporations who've built an entire business model around government spending. The longer that we go, the harder it's going to be to correct this problem. No, absolutely. You know, I think I think Brad Keithley, he he made a very good point. Uh, I think he started talking about this last year is you know, we've got, got, you know, Medicaid is one of the biggest pieces of our government. And, you know, it's easy to say, oh, Medicaid is there to help the poor people. But, okay, so maybe the poor people get the services off of it, but who gets the money out of it? Well, it's doctors and hospitals. They're not on the poor end. You know, they are materially invested in in having a larger government in this sector. And so that's just one example. You know, how many right. how many businesses do we have across the state that that exists because so much of their business comes off of government. Well, you could see that just by the contributions of various companies into various causes, whether it's GCI and the telecommunications industry fighting against a, a, a statutory PFD or the freight companies or other construction companies. I mean, it, it's it's rife in there for sure to see all those things. We've got to find a way to pull it back and and put a group of people in there that understand the long-term consequences of that. Uh, we're down to the last two minutes here, Rob, so I want to give you the floor. Um, you know, you are up for a re-election. I think you've got a pretty good shot of uh, being re-elected. But if folks out there are on the fence, tell me, you know, tell us why Rob Meyer should go back to the Senate. So after the uh, after the redistricting maps came out back in November, uh, I started, you know, filing paperwork to run for re-election again. And my wife looked at me and she said, do you really want to do this again? And I looked at it. <laughs> And, you know, because, you know, I got I got a I got a a wife and I got five kids and I got a good job here and stuff. And and do I need this for myself personally? No, not really. Um, But, you know, she asked me, do you really want to do this again? And I, I, you know, I had to think about, you know, how to respond to that. And and effectively, the answer came down to was the job's not done. And I I took this I, I, I took this on because I wanted to see a state that. 10, 20 years down the line as my kids, you know, finish high school and grow up that there's an opportunity for them to stay in this state and make a life because it's, it's, it's such a wonderful place and I love it. And I don't want to see them graduate high school, look around and say, there's no future here for me and they have to go South. 
Right. And, you know, and maybe they go south anyway, but, you know, because that's what, what kids do. They grow up and they move. But um, <clears throat> but I, I at least want to have an opportunity for them to grow up here. And, and I want a state that isn't isn't just, you know, a government with a little extraction industry off on the one side here. And, and, you know, and, and, and that's, that's the extent of, of what exists in our state. I want to see a thriving state. I want to see a thriving economy. I want to see a lot of opportunity here. And, and, and the, the, the job's not done. And I think I've made my record fairly clear. I, I support the, the dividend. I support a spending cap. I sponsored one of them. Um, and and I, I, I believe in the individual and the private sector over the government, and that's what, what it boils down to. Rob Myers, uh, my friend, thank you for taking time out this morning. I know you sacrificed a little sleep for this, and I appreciate that. Thank you for coming on board. You bet. You bet. Good, always good to talk to you, Michael. You bet. Folks, we are out of time. Tomorrow is Firearms Friday. Dr. John Lott will be our guest, and we will pick things up with him on my favorite day of the week. Be kind. Love one another. Live well. We will see you tomorrow. And I guess uh, if Rob's still there, we'll give him one final bite. Rob, anything we missed? Anything we should have hit on that we didn't? Uh, your thoughts? Ooh, well, you know, it's, it's going to be an interesting next few months. Uh, I'm out of the out of the legislature for a while and i'm i'm home and uh you know for for at least the next uh, month or so i'm primarily focusing on work um I've, I've done a couple of runs to the slope in the last week and i'm going to be doing a uh a little more work over the next couple of uh over the next couple of weeks here because you know i need a paycheck right and, right right uh, you know, it's it's amazing what my kids eat you know yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I know. Try to get them out of my house, man. At two thousand bucks a month for food is just—it's a killer. Uh, yeah, yeah. I know. So you know, I got—I got to focus there. But you know, I'm still thinking about about the election coming up. Uh, I'm thinking about you know the constitutional convention. I'm gonna—I'm gonna think a lot about that um, and, and stuff. It's um, uh, yeah. There's a there's a lot going on here and trying to balance that out. And oh yeah, I I, I I'm I'm in office, so I, I gotta make an appearance at the uh, at my office here and show the staff that I still exist every now and then. And and you know there's there's other events around town that that people are asking me to attend, and I'm I'm gonna you know hit hit a few of them when I, when I can. But uh, yeah. Yeah, getting, getting pulled in a lot of different directions here the next next few months. Absolutely. You don't have to live in Rob's district to help him out. You can go to his website, which is myersforalaska.com, M-Y-E-R-S, myersforalaska.com, and you can donate there to help his campaign. And uh, we, look forward to, uh, we look forward to having you continue with us, uh, uh, Rob. So thanks for coming on and being part of it. We really appreciate it. You bet. We'll talk to you later, Michael. All right, my friend. Thank you, folks, again gotta go thank you for being part of it today again if you would please check out the common sense core you know what that is that's our cool kids club that's the way you help support the show if you want to support the show let me put my hand right there support the show just go to michaeldukeshow.com click on join the core go to patreon.com slash michaeldukeshow oh i've got to send herder a link for the i forgot to do that herder i'll send you a link for the uh, private Facebook page and more. All the Common Sense Core members get access to that. All right, my friends, we are out of time. We will see you tomorrow. Have a great day.
inside our terrestrial radio skin. And now we are slimy lizard internet people. It's the Michael Duke Show. <laughs> 